Just a brief note before we get started, this episode is part of a special series we recorded at the Chemicals America Conference in Fort Worth, Texas. Rather than our usual in-house attorney guests, these episodes feature executives and other business leaders from outside of the legal department discussing some of the biggest issues facing the chemical industry today. We hope longtime listeners appreciate this temporary shift in perspective, and we welcome new listeners, especially those of you in the chemical industry, joining us for this special series. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson. With me, as always, is the producer, Brian Ewing. Uh, we are here in Fort Worth, Texas, recording a special series uh, dealing with the specialty chemical industry. And I'm delighted this afternoon to have three guests. We've got Brooke DiDomenico from Nation Ford, where she is a technical manager. Brooke, thanks for being here. Yep, thanks for having me. Uh, we also have uh, Mara Gliozzi from McGeehan, uh, where she is Vice President and General Business Manager of the Specialty Chemical Division. Thank you for being here, Mara. Thank you for having me. Uh, and then we have uh, my partner, who I'm happy to say is here from Baltimore, Barry. And Barry, anything you want to say about yourself, since uh, I think this is your first appearance on the pod? It is. I'm, I'm really excited to be here with these two women who I just got to know this uh, week, but um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I am the head of our chemical subsector with Wombleban Dickinson. I'm a chemical engineer by training and um, looking forward to hearing what these two uh, ladies have to say about what's going on in the chemicals industry. So Great. Thanks, Barry. I appreciate you being here. So... I wanted to talk about a topic. Those regular listeners to the podcast know we dealt with an issue in women in law, and it's been a hot topic for a number of years. There are a lot of women going to law school, but relatively few women in senior positions in law firms and even general counsel of businesses. So we had some discussions about why. I know when I looked at some of the numbers in chemistry, I think that there are even fewer women in the uh, chemical field. Um, I think uh, one survey uh, from 2017 showed that women had 18.6% of seats on the board of directors at 42 uh, major chemical companies. And those are you know, all chemical companies, so it's not limited just to specialty chemical. And I, and I think there's, if anything, there appears to have been a decrease in the number of people uh, serving in that. So the numbers are not that high, and I'm not sure the trend line is particularly good either. I couldn't find figures specific to specialty chemical, which as I know is a smaller industry segment, and I know that, that both of you are in, but it seems like a fairly small number. I don't, I don't, I'd be interested in any of your maybe anecdotal experiences about how many other women, for example, work with you, Brooke. What's, what's your experience uh, there at Nation Forward? Yeah, uh, most of the women that I work with have been in more administrative roles or in our labs. We have very few, if any, women operators. And until recently, I've been the only women engineer at our facility. So it kind of follows the same trend that you're seeing in, in the data you pulled. Yeah. How about you, Mara? What's your experience? At McGeehan, um, the sales team only has one uh, male on the team, so it's primarily women. Most of the women um, came with technical backgrounds, but never realized that this kind of company or these opportunities existed. So they may have gone through, we have one that uh, has an engineering background, one chemist. So they thought, the chemist thought she was gonna work in the lab and the engineer thought she'd work in some sort of a plant, but didn't realize that there's this crossover where you're doing 
specifically what we do a lot of, which is toll manufacturing. So you're doing a little selling, a little engineering, and then a little operational work also at the same time. Gotcha. And do you have a sense of, like, for example, in management positions or, you know, CEO, C-suite levels, do you see many women in the specialty chemical field? I will say just as a pure anecdotal observation, we have about 300 people here. When I go into that room, uh, it is a very male, very male, very white, and generally very old audience. So, you know, as an old white male, you know, Baron and I probably feel at home, <laughs> <laughs> or old white males. Um, but it is, it, there's not a lot of of diversity in that room. And, and again, I know you've got some executives, you've also got salespeople, and you've got exhibitors, so it's not a scientific assessment, but it looks to me like the numbers are pretty low. Yeah, that's the same impression that I get. Um, but I do, I feel like I'm seeing um, more women each year when we're at these shows, more uh, younger people, more minorities. So I, it seems like it's shifting in the right direction. I don't have any numbers to back it up. But yeah, I, I agree exactly with what you're saying. Um, have there been efforts, I know in the legal profession, um, there have been some structural efforts to try to say, how do we increase both general diversity and also women in particular? Um, with us, that kind of comes in two uh, pressure points. The, the first and the one that we, of course, pay a lot of attention to our clients. We've got some clients, particularly large Fortune 500 clients, that'll say, you know, if you're going to submit, respond to an RFP, or if we're going to give you work, you've got to demonstrate some level of diversity on the team, and we're looking for your numbers. We also have now some internal constraints too. We've adopted something called the Mansfield rule, which is kind of like the Rooney rule in professional sports where women have to be considered uh, for promotions. And we did a podcast episode on the, the Mansfield rule for people that want to learn more. I'm curious whether you see either of those types of things in, in the specialty chemical area. In other words, are people asking about diversity or are there internal initiatives to promote diversity? Brooke, are you seeing anything there? Um, I can only speak for our company, and we're making a conscious effort to try and diversify more. I feel like we have a relatively, even though we don't have a lot of women, we have a relatively diverse staff. But we just, we're having a hard time finding people in general, let alone yes. <laughs> increasing the <laughs> diversity. So it's a struggle. Mm -hmm. Yep. Similar experience for you, Mara? Yeah, finding employees in general is a struggle, but challenging to find women who are interested in it again i don't think they again and we talked a little bit about this yesterday the word yep. chemistry and chemicals has a negative connotation and people don't want to gravitate to these industries and we need to change that perception to encourage people to come along with it talk about stem programming and people want to be an engineer but there's a lot of hard work that goes into being an engineer and i think a lot of women still shy away from those general roles i think that's very true and that was an important um, discussion. I know when I looked at uh, some census data, um, less than 20% of all chemical engineers were women. So it is, you know, it's an area where the pipeline is pretty small. So in that sense, a little different than law where we've got over 50% of, of law graduates are women. I don't think the problem is necessarily for us getting women into the legal field broadly or going to law school. I think it's a challenge for women, particularly retaining and keeping them and, you know, and getting them. And there's lots of issues around everything from, you know, uh, work-life balance and trying to figure out um, that component to historical, who are you, who do you see in that leadership position that you can model yourself on? Um, there, there's lots of studies and efforts to try to, you know, attack that underlying issue. But I wonder too, because um, we've got the chemical piece, but you, we also have the manufacturing piece, which I think can be intimidating to people as well. 
and there's a lot that goes on with it because your plants are running 24-7 a lot of the time. And so people have to make the decision if they're willing to make that sacrifice in their lab, their life to be getting calls at 2 in the morning and leaving their family and going into the plant. And so I think it's there's the chemical aspect and also the manufacturing aspect that could be mm-hmm. intimidating. Yeah, no, that's a good point, right? It's kind of that double. <laughs> it's a potential double, double whammy. Yeah. We work pretty hard at McGeehan to make sure that not only the women, but the men have good life balance. Mm -hmm. So we're making sure that if we have three chemical engineers that work in a department, they have to rotate who's getting those calls so that it's not always the employee who may not have children at home. Sure, yeah. You know, we make that a focus. Yeah. Mark mentioned earlier the the Mansfield rule. I'm curious, and we touched on the fact that it's you know, trying to attract more. Are there programs or initiatives or anything like that that either of you have seen that um, have uh, targeted getting more women involved in the industry in general, manufacturing in general, or in um, engineering as a career pursuit period? So SACMA has started a women in chemistry program and are starting to just roll out some mentoring for other women or women who want to look at more getting into the sciences. Uh, We have some minimal involvement with some STEM programming in in the state of Ohio, but the state of Ohio, the Ohio Chemistry Technology Council does a great job mentoring chemistry and science teachers. So they are always encouraging women, but it still is a a hard sell to people. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of the networking kind of happens I don't want to say too late, but say the SACMA program, it's, it's a lot mentoring us recent grads or recent people in the industry. And I don't know the right answer to get them even earlier on when they're making decisions about what they want to go to college for or what they want to major in. Yeah. And I do know there's some STEM programs for women. My, my daughter, who's in high school, did something called the Para Initiative, and it's all high school girls uh, through 10th through 12th grade, and they spend a day learning about engineering, learning about medicine. So there are some programs, and she's been invited. She happens to want to do STEM. So she, you know, she gets some information, but I'm not, I've not seen anything specific to either the chemical industry or manufacturing. So, you know, even though she may say, oh, STEM sounds interesting, she's like, oh, you know, biomedical engineer, you know, being orthopedic surgeon, those kind of things, which are great, but that's not going to steer someone to end up at, you know, in this field. And so. Yeah, one thing we're doing specifically at our plant, uh, this will be the first year we're doing it, but we're uh, developing relationships with some of the local universities and um, we're going to, Basically, they'll all get in a van and come down to our plant on a Saturday and spend the day with us. And I want to spend a special focus with some of the women and say, you know, you, you can be in this plant and be doing the same work as the guys. And this is what this is what it looks like. You know? mm-hmm. I think that's great. I do think that personal interaction goes far to, you know, to, yeah. to, to see someone that's actually there and get that sense of it's okay. I mean, and, you know, chemical manufacturing is not alone. There are a number of other industries that are still very gender, you know, segregated. And so you look at numbers, auto mechanics, I know, is one that's segregated. There's, there's several others that are just uh, a lot of construction work still, um, you know. And unfortunately, a lot of those are vicious cycles, too, where because it's so gender segregated, it's not very inviting to go in and be the woman working in the auto repair shop if there are no whether women working there because you stand out you don't have you know you just there's a sense of of difference so well as as a patent litigator and you know we go into court and we're trying to convince a jury to rule for our client and if you go in there with just a bunch of old white guys and the jury is typically going to be 50 percent women it it hurts your case and so 
I have a, there's a woman, a partner of ours, Christy Dupriest, who, um, down in Atlanta, who's a, a wonderful litigator. And she, I gave her a bigger role than maybe she was even ready for at the last trial because um, I felt the need to have diversity on our team that we were presenting. And we actually talked to the jurors afterwards and they commented on not only Christy, but um, the woman we had running the trial graphics was also, um, they just liked them. And, and at the end of the day, when you're trying to win a case, that you, you need the jury to like your client and to like the lawyers. And it's better if you have uh, likable people, and, and that includes women. So we, we struggle with the same thing that you guys do with trying to get to be a patent attorney. You know, you have to have an engineering or science background and then go to law school and then want to work at a law firm. So it, it's been a struggle for us, too. We're constantly on the lookout for um, good, diverse candidates. Yeah, and I think that's a good, important story, Barry. And it, it just echoes a lot of the studies show that, you know, diverse teams work better and are more productive than non-diverse teams, particularly in creative areas, whether it's strategizing about a legal defense or trying to come up with a new formulation. You know, I think that diversity, not just gender diversity, but broader, you know, diversity of background, race, you know, really, it, it fosters a more creative thinking environment because you get different perspectives and different aspects. So I think there's value there. I think the challenge is how do you, how do you make it happen? One of the things I was curious about is we've talked with folks in some of our other um, conversations about the fact that, again, going back to employment, getting, getting folks in the door, is that uh, the notion that for folks who are you know, in their 30s and, and maybe not so much in the 20s, but younger folks, they kind of lived through their childhood was a very, very difficult period in manufacturing, American manufacturing, layoffs and plant closings and, and so on. And so there, you know, we wonder if there's some of that is the stigma is, well, I don't want to go into manufacturing because I want to have a consistent job. I don't want to get laid off or be unemployed. I wonder too, when it comes to issues of gender, if the notion that it is predominantly men, and in predominantly men scenarios, they cannot be very pleasant places to work as a woman. And the idea of manufacturing is this kind of heavy labor-intensive, physically demanding kind of uh, uh, role. And I know that that's not the modern manufacturing uh, company. It doesn't look like that. Um, what would you guys say to that as far as the maybe the thoughts that you had before you became manufacturing professionals and what you would say about how that perception has changed and what the reality looks like today? Well, I would certainly not say that chemical manufacturing is a sexy industry. <laughs> it is definitely, you know, somewhat, it's definitely labor intensive. Um, it can be dirty and there's a lot of challenges that come with that. And men and women, I think that's the bigger challenge is getting over the, this is a dirty industry, not so much the job security <clears throat> part of it. Would right. you agree with that, Brooke? That yeah, it's, the, I, it's the perception of going into a manufacturing facility and I'm going to have to, you know, lug bags and drums and lift stuff and, you know, have to clean things at the end of the day and at the end of my shift and stand around and package products. I think that's a bigger struggle than mm. thinking that job security is an issue. Right. And, and Brian and I actually talked about this a little bit yesterday. Um, 
and I think some of it was how we were raised. So I wasn't raised with parents that were in manufacturing. So I didn't come in with that stigmatism the way you did. So, because um, I feel the same way. It never crossed my mind about, I don't want to get into manufacturing because of job stability. Interesting. I'm curious. I mean, you obviously both ended up in this. We've talked about all the barriers. Um, how did you end up in the chemistry industry? What, what's your story? How did you, I mean, that led you to do it despite the various hurdles we've talked about, Mara? Can you, can you share? So I, I have a marketing background. I do not have a science background, which is probably very different than the majority of people around us, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I came to McGeehan as my first job out of high school. Oh, wow. And uh, on all my school breaks, I was welcomed back welcomed back with open arms and encouraged to come back. And uh, they offered me a role right out of school. So I've been with McGeehan my entire career, hmm. seen the company go through a lot of different iterations. We are privately held. We have multiple manufacturing sites in the US, one in the UK, and we have presence throughout Asia. And I've just been given a, a variety of different opportunities. At one point during the last 20 years, we sold off about two thirds of the organization, retained all the assets, and then focused on contract manufacturing during that time. And that became my primary responsibility to grow that contract manufacturing business. So I've just been in the right place at the right time with a lot of great people around me. Well, that's great. I love to hear those stories of long-term employment. I mean, I'm, I've been at the firm since maybe it's my first uh, real job almost 30 years ago. But I think you, have, you and I are fairly unusual in that regard. I know, you know, I talk to my adult children and they're like, why would you stay at a job for more than, you know, four or five years? It's just, you know, the presumption is that you're going to bounce around and, you know, go to the highest bidder and get a different experience. So I do, I think part of that's a mindset, but it obviously speaks highly of McGee and that they kept inviting you back and let you develop and grow in a way that, you know, that it's been a good fit for you for 20 years. So I think that's I would great. also guess when you started your career, you would have never thought you'd be sitting here doing podcasts. That is very true. <laughs> so think that's about the evolution true. of the job that it's you totally put changed. into it also. It's, it's, no, yeah. I think that's exactly it's right. My practice has changed dramatically from where I started. I've done, I, pro I probably could identify eight or nine different transitions of types of clients, types of cases, types of work. So the job has changed, but you're right. I think the firm has grown and changed. The firm is much smaller. We had three offices when I joined. We have 27 now. So, you know, and we've five, six times as big. So it, it is a, it's a transformation both for the firm and for my practice. But you're right. I think a good job lets you grow, encourages that growth and has you stay. So that's In that growth story though, were you able to find, um, and the same for you, Brooke, um, mentorship internally or did you have to go externally? How difficult was that? Um, all internally um, for the first 20 years of my career and all males who I, I honestly, and it's probably not what anybody wants to hear, but never looked at me any differently than any other, other people in the office. I was just female, they were male, treated the same way and asked to do the same things and the same expectations of me uh, when I had young children. And That's so I, the exact I, I, I just same don't think that it's, it, it needs to be identified differently. Mm. Maybe we need to identify women differently to get them into the industry, but I don't think we need to treat them differently throughout the rest of their careers. Right. Yeah. I feel the same way. I feel like I've never been treated any differently. I've never expected to be treated any differently. And I think that may be part of the reason why I've stayed in the industry. I've never had any issues. So sometimes I have trouble relating to other people. And I think it's just because I haven't had any issues. I've never felt any different than anybody. 
Brooke, did you start at uh, Nation Ford out of, out of school, or what, what, no. what's your, been your career? So, yeah, path? I'm chemical engineer by trade. Um, out of school, I, I grew up in New York. Out of school, I moved to Texas and went to work for ExxonMobil for four years. So um, I did that, and it was great, but then I wanted to get to the Charlotte, North Carolina region. So I, I moved to Charlotte and job searched once I got here. Um, so I was in manufacturing, and then I had to find something. So um, I took a design engineering job, and that just wasn't for me. I couldn't sit at a desk all day and just crunch out numbers. So I purposely looked for another manufacturing job because I like working with all different type of people. I'd go crazy if I sat and worked with a bunch of old white men mm -hmm. doing engineering <laughs> calculations all day. So, so I purposely tried to get uh, back into manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's great. And why did you decide to be a chemical engineer? Is that something you always wanted to do as a kid? How did you I, I don't, end up in that field? I don't have a good answer to that. I knew it was as simple as I liked math and science in high school, so I went into engineering, and then I liked chemistry in college. So I was like, okay, I'll do chemical engineering. And then as I was like interviewing for a job at my school, Exxon was the like coveted company everyone wanted to work for. So once I got the offer, I was like, okay, yeah, we'll give it a try. So there was nothing deep to it. Mm -hmm. It was just simple yeah it's funny you say that because i went to lehigh university and uh, there was a woman that was at the top of our class um she was literally just smarter than everyone else and she was just and she worked really hard but she got a job at exxon and then it was just exxon not exxon Mobil. yeah um and that was the coveted job back then that was back in 1992 so that that is very cool that you got that gig that <laughs> i don't think i had the same credentials though <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. Yeah, uh, they were good enough. I think yeah. they get it. Yeah, that's good. Well, and I do think, you know, certainly the idea of going with this big, well-known company, you know, out of college and have that on your resume and get that experience seems like something a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you're happier finding that smaller niche than, oh, it's than great. With, the, with the big company. I mean, so. it just offers you so many opportunities. I mean, similar to what Mara was saying, you can, in a small company, there's so many niches that need to be filled and so you can do a little bit of everything and I mean, your title may not grow a lot because there's only so much you can move vertically but your experience and what you're actually doing is just limitless yeah i think it's great well i think it's great that you didn't experience any of that kind of discrimination harassment stuff that some women you know experience i remember hearing you know my wife and obviously a little older uh, older than uh, than you are you know being a doctor got a lot of uh, both direct you know harassment intimidation and indirect you're a nurse or you can't do that or you shouldn't do that i mean it was uh, so the times have changed some and it's industry specific but i think not too long ago there was real hostility to women in a number of fields. Uh, you said something at the earlier, Mar, that I wanted to follow up on. You talked about like leave policies that are good for everybody, whatever, whatever gender. And I do think that's another important area to make sure you are making a, an environment that's as welcoming as possible for everybody because you're going to have better employees. You're going to attract better employees and retain them if you've got those policies. So it sounds like something that McGeehan has made. That's a priority at McGeehan? I would just say work life balance in general is a priority for everyone mm -hmm. in the organization and making sure that it's there is parity among employees male female alike um, doesn't matter necessarily what the role is sometimes it's engineering support staff who have to take those middle of the night calls because you know we're, you're training them to be engineers but also that's how they learn how to take on a stronger role right yeah. grow grow within that organization and is that something McGeehan does through policies or culture or both? I mean, how, how do you it's culture. implement that? That's it's really, culture. It's a cultural thing. It's culture. Mm -hmm. it, it would be hard to document 
and, and again, documenting it, I think, brings it to a whole other legal aspect, right? So right. if it's a policy and a guideline, our, our culture is one thing, but our culture just supports that. That's great. Similar experience for you, Brooke, in terms of, you know, validating people with lives outside the, uh, outside the office? Um, I would say similar in the fact that everyone shares the burden equally. I don't know that we have as nice of a work-life balance that it sounds like making it, yes, it's spread evenly amongst everybody. Okay. No, we, um, I think you were saying you kind of rotate like the off-hours calls, mm -hmm. and we just operate a little bit differently where everyone has one area of the plant, and if you have issues in your area, you're going to get the call that night. So it's, it's just a different structure. Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, I have to say, I mean, we had dinner last night with a number of folks from Nature Just a great group of people and the dynamic between you and the different, you know, leadership. I, Brian and I were commenting this morning. It's really, I think, unusual and nice to see. Just in terms of hanging out and having a good time, you don't see that, you know, at all companies. Some people, you know, can't stand the idea of having a drink together. So yeah. um, I yeah, think you've got, a, a, you've got a good dynamic, uh, you know. There's yeah. a leadership book, and it's probably old and outdated by now, but it's called uh, From Good to Great. And one of the philosophies is, like, get the right people on the bus. And yes. we spend a lot of time trying to do that. And we'll hold a position open for probably too long just to make sure we've got the right fit when we fill it. Yeah. Well, and I think that, I mean, in terms of culture and commitment, that's, that's a very important approach. And I imagine it can be hard to do in a time where it's hard to find good people. Yes. Because that means everybody works really hard. Right. Exactly. So, they don't, so they get the right people on the bus. The bus never stops at home. But it's a full bus. I, I'm curious. Um, you know, I've heard other women professionals talk about uh, this conversation in general of your women professionals. And it's like, ooh, <laughs> like so strange. I, I, and so I do come into these, we've had a couple of podcasts now that are kind of focused around this. And so I do come into these conversations um, with that kind of in mind, like, I don't want it to be like, I don't want to be the white guy who asks the dumb questions. And I think that that's something that can be educational is, are there things that you guys are just like, oh man, I'm so tired of having that question asked of me. Like you wouldn't ask that of a uh, my male counterpart or, or are there things thinking that you're like that's just boneheaded and we were you know I'm, I, why do people I'm just curious <laughs> he's just he's just like that. he's just used to having you know, people call his ideas boneheaded no so. no no he's, he's pretty, you're spot on I, I just don't have a good ex any good examples but well, no you're you're right those it's the thought process and I don't have it in my organization I don't typically have it in any professional settings except coming to things like this. Right. Where it, it becomes, let's have the women in chemistry breakfast, which is a great idea and it's great for mentorship, but the idea that we have to have it, mm. right. it, yeah. it, so, it's, it kind of makes me scratch my head. It is yeah. like that weird line to walk with for, I would imagine, again, because I'm a white male, I get down whatever, but for minorities, women and minorities in general, that like line to have to walk of like, you know, we want to be, we need to have this recognition, but at the same time, we're just separating again. Like that's, that must be like tricky. Yeah. And I, this isn't really going to answer your question, but it's kind of an example. Um, I have a customer that I work with and we occasionally disagree on the path forward. And it's funny to me because I feel like we disagree because we have different opinions and that's it. And I have an employee that every time we hang up the phone, he's like, 
I can't believe he treats you that way because you're a woman. And it never crosses my mind he's treating me that way because I'm a woman. He's treating me that way because we disagree. And that's it. And so he'll say that afterward. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I didn't think that. I still don't think that. But okay. It's just so different how the same conversation can be interpreted totally differently. Yeah. No, I do think that's true. And I think that, Brian, in your boneheaded way of kind of put your uh, finger on, I do, the challenge is we want to be able to talk about uh, these issues, but we also, do, you know, by doing so, you just don't, you don't want to highlight it either. People have different perceptions. They may assume something is uh, based on gender discrimination or differential treatment. I, I, again, we struggle with that. We have a woman of Womble group in our firm that is, you know, for women. And so you want to promote diversity and inclusion and engagement. And so you want opportunities to do that, but you also need to be careful around, are we, are we actually creating more segmentation or creating some you know, different standard? I mean, our firm, you know, we, we're run by a woman. We've got a majority of women on the executive committee. It's uh, you know, at, at our management levels now, we've got women at the very top positions. So, but I think that doesn't mean we're done or we don't have a ways to go. And I think the, the dialogue is important, but you're right. You don't want to talk about it so much. You create issues where there aren't any. You don't want to create an expectation of different treatment if it's not there or have some question about, well, why? You know, why? You know, so I do. I think, that's a, I think it's, it's interesting to decide how to talk about it and how much to talk about it. How do you talk about your professions and manufacturing in general with uh, young women, you mentioned the college students and things uh, that you're involved with, how do you talk about that with them to be encouraging? I, I don't know that I talk to young women any differently than I talk to young men. And um, for several years, we were involved with a group out of the Cleveland Municipal Schools of students who did really well in STEM programming. And they were middle school kids. And they would do a variety of of activities during the school year on Saturdays. And they would come to McGeehan for a day and we would show them all the roles, whether it was operational, whether it was being an actual operator, whether it was working in the lab, finance, sales, and would run them through the gamut of all those opportunities. But we didn't talk to the young ladies or young men any differently. Um, So we talk about it, this is is the job, not how does it fit with your gender. So do you think it's any any differently? I don't, and I feel like I have to make a conscious effort now, like with these groups coming in, to focus on the women where I never would have in the past, but now I feel like it's kind of expected. Mm-hmm. Even though in a normal conversation, I would be exactly like you're saying, like this is what it is and there's no reason to differentiate, but I feel like it's now expected to, mm. to talk about it more. Well, part of it's just the position that you're in. I mean, you are a role model for younger women if they're interested in that, that they can be you know, a high up at a chemical company and be in charge of engineers and operations and things like that. And I think it's, I don't know that you, I I kind of agree with Mara, I don't know that you need to say it. It's just by virtue of your role and the position you have with the company, you're saying a lot without actually saying anything, so. Which I agree, but then when people come to you saying, well, what are you doing to make it more inclusive for women? You say, well, we're not doing anything. <laughs> you know? So it's like, how do you answer that? Right. Well, and the other side so of it's that, hard. Yeah. The other side of that is, well, yeah, be a role model for women, but hopefully I'm a role model for all of those kids that come in, whether it's a, a white girl or a black boy or, or you know, anybody. Like, I, I, hopefully I'm a role model for the period, but it is this weird, like, 
again, that weird gray area that I think women professionals and, and having done a couple of, talked about this topic in a couple of different ways, like it is, I do, I don't envy you for lots of reasons and that's one because it is a weird kind of tricky thing to be in to like to, to navigate, I would imagine. Yeah, every once in a while I'll look around a room at an event like this or I'm on the SOCMA board sitting in the room and say, you know, it, it is a little bit unusual that there's, when the SOCMA staff is not in the room, there's two women out of the 25 people sitting on the board, mm -hmm. but it's such a fleeting thought that it's gone in a moment and yeah. we're back to just talking about whatever's on the agenda. And usually it's when we're talking about things like the women in chemistry breakfast <laughs> or something like that. Right. Yeah. No. I, I, well, I think this, I appreciate the discussion because I do think it's a challenging issue. And I don't think anybody, you know, has some vision that you're going to snap your fingers and then half of every chemical engineer is going to be a woman, right? I mean, there's going to be, and I'm not sure that would be the right answer either, right? It doesn't necessarily you know, be equal, but I do think there's a concern about a lot of historic, you know, gender discrimination or at least pushing people, you know, girls don't do that and either either direct hostility like my wife experienced in the medical field or kind of this societal pressure of no, you know, women shouldn't be doing the manufacturing work or the dirty job or, and I think that our prior conversation about chemicals in general is having this bad rap that who wants to work at a chemicals company, um, that is, a, you know, that seems to, that's a non-gender problem but a problem in terms of perception, you know, so clearly something needs to be done to try to improve the number of people available to work in the area and yeah, I agree, it's not all about gender, but it's an interesting discussion to think what, you know, what role there are, are there barriers, were there barriers, uh, you know, what, if anything, do you do to, to, to get to the point where it really doesn't matter, we just talk to everybody the same. So I appreciate the dialogue. It would have been interesting to have one more person on the panel that had like a total opposing viewpoint to ours. Yes. Um, or just opposing so I could, experience. Yeah, right. sure. Just so I could better understand it too. Yeah. Well, I will say in the conversations that we've had, we've, a lot of the women that we've spoken to have said, you know, essentially kind of the same thing, that, that it is different from, you know, our mother's generation and our grandmother's generation, that society has shifted a bit and, and for the good. And so it is, but it, there is still this gap and disparity in the numbers. And so it's like, you know, how do you, tackle the numbers without kind of becoming, you know, highly be like, let's have a special podcast episode about yeah. <laughs> in this thing. Like, yeah, right. So, right. Yeah. But it is interesting to hear you say that it's not something exclusive to the sciences because you're having the same conversations on the law side. My sister's a lawyer, so I know that, mm -hmm. you know, she has more female friends who are lawyers than male friends who are lawyers. So I know there's a lot of, a lot of women lawyers out there. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that the point you guys were talking about earlier about mentoring and sponsorship, those two things are completely different. And I think for me and what I've experienced, having a sponsor has been more helpful than anything to grow my own professional career. And having, and they've all been male too, by the way, just to your point, and helping me advance further. It's been that male voice at the top that has said, you know, Stephanie needs to have this opportunity. And so I think that sometimes sponsors can be even more important than mentors. Mentors you can go outside of your own organization for, but having, if you want to move up and do well and get further in your own profession, I think that having those sponsors really helps. So it sounds like both of you have had that, which is great. Yeah. 
I'm curious if they're having these same conversations in like the teaching industry or the nursing industry on how do we get more men involved? Are they I'm pretty confident in education the answer is no. I mean, I've, I've served for 15 years as a school board attorney and I've done some stuff, both my parents are teachers and done some college education stuff and I've never attended a program. You're shaking your head, There's, Brian, maybe you have more awareness, but I haven't seen any initiatives to get more men in elementary school teaching. Again, the teaching is broad enough, right? College professors are still more men than sure, women. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah, you go to you know, K-5, very few men in that area. Okay. What, what were you gonna K say? K through eight, so mm -hmm. I covered education when I, when I was a reporter for many years, and I will say that there are some efforts specifically in the um, middle school years uh, because uh, there's been some data that shows that, that, that it can be positive to have men uh, in the classroom in those years, uh, more men anyway. And so there has been, there have been some efforts, but not, not as um, prolific or, or as um, large as the efforts that we've seen with tackling the gender gap for women and uh, other professions. But there's, there's been some, mm -hmm. and there's recognition and, and studies and stuff that have been done uh, with education now. Right. You know, as far as um, nursing, healthcare industry, I, well, I'm not sure. I don't know. The disparities, it's been a few years since the study, and maybe the numbers are better, but I was shocked. This was looking at a number of industries, um, and there, there's wide disparities across industries. Very few, you know, more industries are, are significantly gender segregated than are, than are in the middle. And it's everything from you look at, you know, call center workers and clerical support staff or even paralegals uh, in North Carolina, a vast majority are female as opposed to male. So you've got, uh, if you look at our legal assistants in the firm, and again, it's more anecdotal, but it's a small percentage that are men. So, and, and that's just, those are just examples I'm closer to, but when we were, they were looking at a lot of different areas, it is remarkable, you know, there really is this, uh, it tends to be this, this gender separation in a lot of positions. Yeah. And I, again, some of this is historic, you know, people used to view certain jobs as male jobs or female jobs. Uh, some of it may be more skill-based if you want to get into more traditional views of, you know, men versus women and who's going to have some of those people compassion skills versus the, you know, a more intellectual, you know, you just, Again, a lot of that's stereotypical, so I, but I think there are, you, you could argue that there may be genuine differences that make some people better, that, you know, women may be naturally better doctors than men, for example. That's something my wife has convinced me of. So, but, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I think it's, it, it is interesting to see, and it is not just this industry, it's, it's, and it's certainly STEM, but I think it's even beyond that, so. Yeah. And I, we have to decide as a society if, if this is really a problem that needs to be fixed or is it just a natural thing that's going to happen and we shouldn't spend time worrying about it. I mean, I think that's, that's part of the challenge. Yeah. I mean, I think, I know for law there's a sense of, well, there are a lot of women entering the profession, but there aren't a lot of women at the top. And is this just because it's going to gradually change as the population ages or is this more of an ingrained, you know, male-centered you know, domination, or are there other barriers that are preventing women generally from, you know, becoming partners in law firms? So it's a good discussion without a lot of easy answers. Yeah. Um, good. Well, we're almost out of time. Any final thoughts or comments? I appreciate everyone spending a little bit of time to talk about this issue, whether it needs to be talked about or not. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's good. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Mara, Brooke, Barry, thank you all for 
for joining us. I want to remind our listeners, you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse, as well as subscribe to the podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or simply go to iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you've got questions or comments about this episode or about the whole idea of men versus women, you can share them on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm also always interested in ideas for future episodes. Thank you for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womblebond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.